Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the Distraction Pieces podcast episode. What episode is it? Episode 381. I should have looked at that before I started recording. But yeah, episode 381. And it's with Daniel Sloss. And it's such a good chat. Me and Daniel have known each other for years on social media, but never actually chatted like directly. So I'm so pleased that we got to do it. And I mean, just as an artist, I'm such a fan of Daniel. And as a person, I feel such a connection with the way his mind works and all that. So it was really good to have this chat. Um, you know, I said I said last week, and again, all of you have confirmed, so thank you for all the love. But I said last week's episode was my favourite I've ever done. And I said to you then that I recorded that, and then the next day I recorded this episode with Daniel Sloss, and I was suddenly like... This might be my new favourite. <laughs> and then after I recorded last week's intro, I've recorded the episode for the next for next week. And that might be the best episode I've ever done. So obviously I think they're always good, but this three in a row is just ridiculous. So if you haven't listened to last week's with Wheelchair Sports Camp, head back and give that a listen and stick around for next week's. But you're going to love this chat. Daniel's so good. As you'll know from his stand-up, he's so good at being really raw and open and you know really exposing himself emotionally but being light with it and funny with it and casual with it it's a wonderful thing so yeah well let's get into this chat obviously as ever you can support the podcast for a dollar or a dollar fifty a month or something over at patreon.com um slash pip I'll definitely be doing another patron hangout soon on Zoom, so head over there and get involved in that. The the fact that it's a dollar for the whole month and you get to support the podcast and come and do a hangout, maybe that's that's worth it, right? But if not, head over to speechdevelopmentrecords.com because you can buy merch, and that's, in my opinion, that's the best way to support the podcast because you literally just get what you paid for, but also you're inadvertently supporting the podcast. So head over there. We've got loads of s- summer gear, winter gear. We've just restocked uh ever selling out we may not be for you and that's fine sunglasses so head over there and check them out if this is your first time listening of course i've had loads of good comedians on from Stuart lee to dame baptiste to nish kumar to ashlyn b Catherine ryan sarah pascoe cariad lloyd limmy fern brady who else frankie boyle um adam buxton everyone i've had everyone on basically just all the comedians i've had them all on and they've all been wonderful so go and have a listen let's get into the podcast this is episode 381 of the distraction pieces podcast with daniel sloss recording and ready when you are bud i will begin right i'm joined today by daniel sloss how are you sir i'm good i am uh, six days in to a 14-day quarantine in uh, sydney australia right now and how are you finding it it's it's genuinely all right and i don't mean that to say that quarantine is easy but i say it as 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 a as a minor celebrity quarantining is easy because I get to I get to do it in a nice hotel and I managed to uh, pay for a 
room upgrade. So I've got a balcony, which to me seems... It seems really against quarantine rules. Like, surely the number one rule of quarantine is that you should not be able to spit on the public. You'd think that was the number one priority. <laughs> that would be helpful, right? I'm, I'm, I tell you, that's got to be a deal breaker because I did a quarantine. It was in September now. I've been in Canada for, for s- s- seven months. And I was like, quarantine, this is going to be heaven I love mm. just like an, an excuse to just w- watch TV. I bought my PlayStation with me. Ah, but the Airbnb I got hasn't got a balcony. And man, after a few days, it, it got better towards the, at the end of it. But particularly with jet lag as well, I got a few days in. I was like, I'm not enjoying this as much as I thought I was going to enjoy <laughs> this. I thought this was going to be great fun, but but not. But you brought. A, a console with you, you've got a balcony, you're in good in good condition, right? Yeah, so far I've had like, because I've got friends in Australia as well, and I've got a really good uh, manager out here, like a lovely company called Century, who've looked after me since I was 19 in Australia. I mean, they just drop off, you know, bottles of wine and, you know, li- like like cutlery, little, really, really nice. They, they dropped off cutlery, they're like, you'll need this. And here's some painkillers, and here's all the things that you forgot to bring because you oh, were an man, idiot. Oh, that's golden. And they, yeah, so it, it's it's been all right. Like, I mean, don't get me wrong, it's definitely isolation. Yeah. I've not had a wobble yet. I'm expecting to have one because I've never gone through anything in my life and not had a wobble at some point. <laughs> like, yeah. I can I can only take so much before my brain goes, all right, let's have, let's have a little cry about this now. Between like 8 and 12 in the morning is good because that's like nighttime in the UK. So I get to phone my fiance, I can uh, talk to my family and stuff and my friends are still awake. And then anytime after 6pm here, people are waking up as well uh, yeah. and over there and you know, I'm playing computer games with my brothers and whatnot. So it's just between like 12 and 6 when you just go... All right. Okay. So this is the this is the slog bit. This is the bit where we really find out how long six hours is. Yeah. But I'm so easily amused, man. Like I can play FIFA for five hours a day, and it, like have a podcast on beside me because like FIFA takes up my hands and my eyes, and it just occupies me. And then yeah. I can listen to a podcast, and you just sort of. It's in quarantine you realize how fucking boring you really are. <laughs> like, I, I- I would argue, and if any any listeners want to chime in, I would argue FIFA is the perfect podcast accompaniment because most a yes. lot of other games you need the audio a bit, whereas with FIFA you can maybe have the commentary on a little bit, but you don't you don't need to be paying attention to anything. There's there's so many games I've started playing, and then I've got a, a bit into it and thought, oh man, I'm getting really into this. My podcast listening is going to drop ma- massively because I can't, <laughs> I can't have a podcast on. So I'll go back to FIFA and go. Well, there we go, S- safe yeah. space. But yeah, yeah. what what team do you what do you, team do you go for when you do FIFA? Who do you Millwall, take to the top every time? I've I've been going to Millwall <laughs> since I was five, and there was in, in Championship Manager as well. And I lucked out because in Championship Manager there was an era in the nineties where one of the kind of unsung heroes of the game was a guy called Cherno Samba, who was genuinely okay. at Millwall at about 16. And in the game, pretty much every time, <laughs> regard, like he'd end up being signed by Manu, p- playing for England, all of this. So if you started as Millwall, you had this one guy that could... The wonder that, kids. That could do it for you. But as soon as, as that was out, it became a lot harder to, to play as Millwall. But I genuinely... this. The years I've been into FIFA, 
I've known the club I support more than any other years. Because you really are. <laughs> you, you, you're going through and you're bringing players through and all that. You're like, as soon as yeah. I'm, I'm at the ground, I'm with my dad and I'm like, I tell you, they should bring on. <laughs> it's like some guy <laughs> I've never heard of. But I've seen him be good on FIFA and I'm like, I tell you, he's quality. He's got pace. <laughs> <laughs> that was like, I always had a, because like a lot, I either play Hebs because yeah. uh, that's my Scottish team, or I do uh, Chelsea because I'm a bastard. And uh, for like ever ever since I was fucking 22 years old, I'm like George McEachern. George McEachern is going to be the fucking next biggest thing, and he's still yeah. not the next biggest thing yet. But I'm just one of these fucking days. It's going to be him because he's taken me to so many Champions League finals. Yeah. This particular campaign I'm doing at the moment, just because I'm so <laughs> bored, I've. Uh, I've customised Hibs to include myself as a striker uh, and just a bunch of my comedian mates to fill the fucking positions. So it's like a comedian's team playing for Hibs. And God, the fucking, fucking genuine amazing. anger I feel for my fucking friends. Like, I nearly text a good friend of mine, Gareth Watt. I nearly sent him a sincere death threat, being like, if you fucking miss one more penalty for this fucking club, I swear to God, man, you're benched <laughs> for the rest of the season. And he's just messaging me back going, what? What are you talking? No, sorry, man. I know it's not the real you. Sorry, I got. I'm in isolation. I got confused. I got. I got carried away. the 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 other thing about isolation and and and, and travel. This just occurred to me because I've been doing a lot of walking and listening to podcasts. And I was listening to Tom Allen on Adam Adam Buxton's podcast recently, and he was saying how in his like late teens or early twenties or something, he went on his own to Japan for a week. And he thought it'd be amazing. And then he got really bored a lot of the time. And I think I think montages are to blame. Because montages <laughs> show everything as this amazing quick thing. The reality of most things is long and boring. So so yeah. I would do the same. I'd think, oh, I'd love to go have a week in Japan on my own. Oh, I'll do s- s- so much. And then the montage of it would be amazing. But the actual waking up every day, as you say at the moment, the getting through that... 12 until 6 period is yeah is slower than you can imagine the t- the the montage thing is so true me and kai talk about it all the time whenever we've done fucking tours which is whenever we come back from tour and friends and family ask how it was you only ever tell the good stories you only yeah. ever tell the oh you know there was the time we were in lithuania and we did this and then we were you know we had a great night in liverpool or, and people go oh my god tours sounds so much fun and you go no no we were miserable for most of it but those aren't the stories that you tell yeah. you don't talk about the seven hour fucking drives in the middle of the night you don't talk about the running through fucking ski airport the worst airport in the entire fucking world and you don't talk about all these things because your brain much like when women give labor your brain just goes right we're going to delete that shit that's not yeah. we don't need to carry that into the mm-hmm. future see it's it's it, it, it's interesting you say that because one of the things that really made me connect massively with you when i first heard some of your stand-up and we've 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 talked online a bit over the years. It's mad that we've never got round to doing the podcast. So I'm glad it's happening. One of the things that made me connect massively with you is the talking about negative or dark subjects and not being aware that they're they're negative or dark. Because I've had that my whole career. I'll I'll release an album and the reviews will say, you know, it's quite morbid. And I'll be like, oh, is it? (laughs) 
Oh, oh, I, 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 oh. <laughs> I wasn't aware. I just thought that I was just talking about stuff that I found interesting. And it is, it's that stuff that, as you say with the tours there, that stuff that you don't talk about the dark times when you're telling stories or to other people, but it's the stuff I go back and reflect upon and not in a negative way, in a kind of, mm. wow, when that person died or when this happened or when that happened, the reality of me was I wanted to get out of that feeling as quickly as possible. Now I'm out of it. Let's kind of have a look back at it. And you've had, obviously, your stand-up dark and Jigsaw both kind of cover a lot of of heavy subjects. Yeah, I mean, I've always, I mean, it's always air quote fucking uh, taboo subjects. And I hate yeah. the term taboo subjects. Like, literally, it's much like swear words, right? The only reason swear words have power and effect is because cunts give them power and effect. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Swearing would be a lot less interesting to me if it didn't make most people flinch. I promise you, if nobody reacted to the word cunt, I wouldn't say cunt so fucking much. But because there's so many pretty losers out there, you go, all right, well, now you've just given me this sort of power and ability. Is that why you love Australia then? Is, it, it, is that why you do Australia a so. lot? Because they're fine with the word cunt. Australia and England are kind of the ones that, that yeah. have the biggest t- t- tolerance. So that yeah. makes sense. Yeah, and it's, yeah, I, I just like the, you know, I always get annoyed by people who get offended by swearing because you just go, really? That's, oh, you're going to fucking hate my stand-up. Like, if yeah. you are offended by swearing, <laughs> that's the fucking top bit. You're not going to survive any of this. And with taboo subjects, the only reason any of these subjects are taboo is because people don't talk about them. Because, and it's not people that don't talk about them. Human beings talk about them quite regularly. It's just... The, you know, the media, TV, there's, you know, there's so many fucking cowards at the top who just go, oh, no, no, no. They decide on the audience's behalf. They go, no, we're not going to let you see that because we think that's a little bit too sensitive for you. And it's just mollycoddling it at the highest order. I've always hated, well, not hated, but, you know, I've never considered myself a dark comic. That's why dark was called dark was because it was just like, okay, if you're going to force this term on me, Sure, but it's not a way I describe myself. I consider myself, I mean, I'm a miserable bastard, but like I'm, I'm, I'm happy throughout. Like I'm happiest when I'm ranting. I'm happiest when I'm fucking complaining, you know. Hating something gives me so much life. <laughs> <laughs> like I never feel, it's like, it's like, meta. have you ever like hated someone so fucking much? that it made you truly be present in the moment. <laughs> like, yeah, it's a meditation perfect, right? in a way. Yeah. I love it. It's, it, it. it's one of the beautiful things about sports, is you get to have true hate for someone you don't know at all, but they're your enemy. Yeah. They're, they're, they're the team that are doing you wrong. And it's a game. It's a fucking game. There's no valid reason. It's not like they've genuinely impacted your life in a negative way on a personal level. Then no. that hatred can be... A damaging one. It's a hatred that you can just switch into every weekend. Just tune yeah. in for that intense drive of hatred, then get, get, get on with your day. It's not going to haunt your dreams. Yeah, and it's good because you go, you know what? It's much better that I take all of this hatred out <laughs> on Liverpool than a random stranger in the street. It's so much better that, you know, I attribute it to fucking <laughs> Mo Salah instead of, you know, my fiance or family members. It's healthier. It's, it's a release. Exactly. Well, I mean, you, you, you mentioned your fiance there, and I want to s- s- say congratulations. Number one on you. on your engagement, but number two on 
the engagement that spawned the most anger out of strangers um, I've oh. ever seen. Be- because <laughs> you, again, it's a it's a piece. It was a bit in jigsaw that just blew my mind when I saw it. It was so perfectly worded. I think it's such a great piece of comedy, but also a piece of observation um, about ending ending relationships essentially, and that yeah. that love is quite unrealistic and watching online you went on to quite proudly revel in the amount of relationships that ended because of your show i, yeah. I literally had it I'd, I'd watch like after after me and my partner watched it we're still together um we <laughs> friends of ours or people we knew split up and the first thing we'd kind of be like do you think do you think they've watched Slossish show because because again it's like they seemed really happy a week ago and now all yeah, of a sudden yeah. I was like is this it so talk me through kind of some of that that journey of 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 almost reveling in that but again it is it's it was not saying relationships it, I was never are bad love. yeah no like I've always this is the the tagline that I'd wish I'd put on Jigsaw was that it was a love letter to single people. Yeah. Right. Ever since I was young, I knew I wanted to get married and have kids. Right. Because my parents are to this married to this day. They're so deeply in love with each other. That extends through my extended family as well. Like I know love is real. And I tried to emulate that so much when I was young. Like I got into a relationship with a really lovely girl when I was about 18 years old. And I was like, well, this is it. I'm going to marry her. We're going to have kids before we're 25, just like my parents did, just like my grandparents did, because that's what you do. And that's how you continue on with your life. And then I got into stand up and there was just this new level of, you know, freedom. You know, it wasn't like a normal job. I knew I was going to be traveling around and me and her amicably sort of drifted apart. We were headed down two very clear different directions. But that breakup was really hard because I felt like, I felt like I was breaking the rules. I was like, you can't. I was meant to be with her forever. You get married and you you do all this before you're 25 because that's the done thing. And then and then I was single for ages and I was like, this is brilliant. Like I was, I was actually learning who I was. I wasn't trying to shape myself to fit someone else. I just got to, you know, make mistakes and find out what I enjoyed about myself, the parts I didn't enjoy about myself. And there was just all these people in relationships around me shite relationships who were like when are you gonna settle down and i was like what for the fucking cunt you've got like you like at what point do you think you are living a happier life than me and there's a there's a real fucking smugness to some people in relationships especially the fucking instagram couples you know when they go on and they 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 post all these perfect pictures about their perfect relationship and and you go I know you fucking hate him you've told me how much you find him boring you've told me other things and and I'm being single I was like this is unfair because you're trying to rub this false happiness in my face when I'm experiencing true happiness but more importantly I found it toxic because by lying to people about how happy your relationship is online, you're convincing people who are single and who are struggling to be single, because it is hard being alone sometimes. You are telling those people that settling for shit is better than waiting, and that is fundamentally not true. It's so much better to fucking wait, work out who you are, and find someone who truly loves you for who you are, instead of compromising any single part of yourself. Why would you want to spend any portion of your life compromising who you are? That's not what human experience is about. So, you know, I wrote this, and I, and I would also then, I, I got into a very, very 
toxic relationship uh, with uh, an emotionally abusive girl that where I thought I was in love with her and then it just turns into this whole ordeal. And the fucking relief I felt at getting out of that relationship. Like there was mm. times in that relationship where I was so scared to break up with her, where I was just so scared of the consequences of what might happen. I remember vividly just standing in a shower and just going, this is it. Like, this is the rest of my life. Like, this level of just, like, miserable, like, yes, dear, whatever you want, dear, like, whatever you say, like, that's just going to be me. And that just made me more, de- the thought of that made me more depressed than the relationship. So I just ended it. And, and, and look, it was a rough breakup because all breakups are rough. Never expect, even if it's an amicable breakup, ending a relationship is, you know, it's ending a chapter in your life. But the fucking, oh my God, man, it was taken, it was like taking off a bag of weights and going for a yeah. walk. Just this, and I enjoyed being single again. And I really wanted people to not be in that situation I was, to not think that the relationship you are in, you have to be in. It's the only one because there's so many people out there and so many better people. So my dad had told me this analogy when I was younger and I was at a party once with a friend of mine and I was just, I was drunk and I started talking about, the, the 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 jigsaw analogy and a week later he messaged me just being like man i could not get that out of my head like i've just i've just broken up with my girlfriend and i was like oh well that okay well congrats man like sincere congrats like you know you were in a bad relationship i'm glad you managed to get out of it and then he told two of his friends who were in a shite relationship about it and then both of them broke up and i was like well this is very interesting <laughs> So <laughs> I started talking about it on stage a little bit and, and Jigsaw sucked at the start, man. Like there was, it was just me yelling at the audience going, you're in this relationship and this is why you're in this relationship and this is why you're wrong. And there's just all these happily married couples going, the fuck is this little shit saying? And it was... Uh, it was my best friend, Jean. She wasn't, she didn't even see the show, right? But because she's seen me do stand-up so many times, I was like, I just can't, I just can't get the analogy working on stage. And she said, without even seeing the show, I know exactly what it is you're doing. You're not telling people what you think. You're telling them what they should think. And that's why they're mm. not listening. If you turn it, it over to you and you make it about you, and that's when I started being a bit more honest about, you know, my relationship, my bad relationship and... And then th- instead of telling people to relate to you, it's much easier to just tell a story about yourself. And and human instinct makes us want to be closer to each other. So people who could relate to it would put themselves in my shoes and sort of come to that own conclusion themselves. And those who are in happy relationships can also enjoy the show because they remember their shitty relationships before. They know their friends in those relationships. So during the fringe, it sort of trickled up to like, I'd get tweets after shows, like one or two, just, hey, just dump my boyfriend, hey, just dump my girlfriend. Did a show in Dundee, and, like, the guy, some guy came up to me, and he was like, I, I saw your show in Edinburgh, and I had to come see it again to tell you that I left my wife. And, and, and I was like, oh, my God, this is getting fucking interesting. Like, that's, you know, 50 breakups and one divorce. So I keep talking about the tally, and I keep telling people to tell me, and then when Netflix came out, because, I mean, it just goes out everywhere, yeah. it just went through the fucking roof, man. Like, I spent a solid week in L.A. just lying on my friend's couch, sofa surfing, just going through my fucking DMs on Instagram, just reading all of these. And some of, like, people, 
you know, people focus on the breakups because that's what I focus on because I think it's the funniest thing in the world that that show has had that impact. Right? Uh, I think it's so so hysterical. But again, it was all, it's only people in bad relationships. Reading these messages from people who were in abusive relationship, toxic relationships, who finally had the fucking strength to get out of them and be better. I was like. This is great. Like, this is a positive oh, show. Well, that's the bit that I think got overlooked when that was all happening and being kind of pushed in, in, in the press a bit. Because if you've not watched the actual show, number one, go and watch it because the jigsaw analogy is so perfectly crafted. But there's a point in it where you say that you can't find love. And, and again, it's so it's such a, 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 a relationship guidance type thing. You can't find love until you, you love yourself. And if you love yourself 20%, then you'll be blown away by someone who loves you 30% or 40% yeah. rather than 100%. And that's not that's not good enough. Everyone deserves that that complete thing. So it's not just a kind of, I'm going to break up relationships. It's, no, I'm going to no, stop it's... people s- settling for bad relationships and or being scared to be on their own as well was a lot I got from it. Yeah. That became a big thing for me in my kind of t- t- 20s of making sure I'm like, right, I want to be in a relationship because I want to be in a relationship, not because, as you say, it's the standard, it's what everyone's expecting. It's as if it's a ticking clock. You're like, well, mm. the last one ended a while ago now. I I truly believe that falling in love should be the fucking most inconvenient thing in the world. Like, it should be, <laughs> it should be a stick in the fucking front wheel of your bike. It should stop you dead and you should be livid at it. Because, you know, if if you enjoy being single, or not even if you enjoy being single, if you're okay with being single, if you're fine with being alone, then it means somebody has to be amazing to make you want to be in a relationship. And that is what everyone deserves. We do deserve somebody, you know, like that. My favourite love song ever is Then I Met You by The Proclaimers, because it's about exactly that. It's about someone being completely happy and being single and kind of selfish, the beauty of, of, of selfishness. Because, again, I, it's been weird in the last few years when, or in the last year, really, where selfishness, I think, has been a as big a pandemic as anything else. But I've been saying for years that I think a level of selfishness is really important for our mental health. We really need to go, right, what do I need and what do I want, rather than feeling guilty about looking out for what we need and we want. Because that's when we break, is when we're too focused on, oh, no, everyone else rather than ourselves. Mm-hmm. And... And that song's all about that. It's about, I was happy, I found it all, I was, li- I was living my life selfish, and then I met you. And it's kind of, it's still a beautiful song, but it's this, it's exactly that. It's that kind of, right, this took me away, not from another r- relationship, not from anything else, from the beauty of singledom. <laughs> yeah, and and, 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 it's, and it's nice to be, you know, it, it's, I always think your first reaction to being in love should be, ah, oh, fuck. Shit, shit, fuck it. It should be like shitting the bed where you go, oh, look what you've done. Oh, you fucking idiot. You've gone and fallen in love. You fucking, you're trying to wipe off yourself, but you're just sort of resigned to it all. And I mean, and this is, this is me talking about my fiance at this point, but that's what yeah, she is. Yeah, I mean, is. I was going to say, you, you must have had that magnified though because of this show and because of the points that you'd made publicly. Here's what, mm-hmm. so that must have been a real, oh man. Yeah, this is a well, nightmare. Oh, I, 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 kept, I, keep, I kept saying to her, I was just uh, because I mean our relationship has been a, a very long and uh, interesting one and controversial at points uh, <laughs> within the family. 
But I mean, we were in love. I mean, we we just we just were like. I mean, it was yeah. just very very obvious from the first couple of times that we you know hung out properly and started seeing each other that we were just like. I mean, there's nothing we can do to fucking avoid this. It's two cars heading towards each other. Yeah. And I mean, the proposal. Most people were fucking happy, but people who hadn't watched Jigsaw, people who had only seen the fucking headlines. Yeah, were like, oh my god, you're a hypocrite. I'm like, no, 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 no. At no point during Jigsaw do I say love is not real. In fact, the whole point of Jigsaw is that love is very, very much real, but people are settling for less, and that's what I'm not yeah. happy with. And, I mean, look, on the on the plus, if me and her end up getting divorced one day, that's going to be a hell of a fucking sequel. Yeah. Like, the yeah. next show's going to be called Daniel Sloss, I Knew I Was Right. And then I'll just come out four times as fucking angry, be like, she took everything from me. Daniel Sloss, point proven. <laughs> <laughs> Daniel Sloss, I should have believed in myself more. <laughs> um, have you read, this, is, this, this might be an out of the blue one, but have you read The Book of Disquiet by Fernando Pessoa? Because no. there was loads of bits in... In I think it was in Jigsaw, maybe a few bits in Dark that really jumped out to me as stuff I'd I'd, I'd learnt from that book. It's this mad book that was incomplete when the the author died, so it's been kind of put together in as best an order as it can. But but one of the things he talks about is, is something that you touch upon, and something that has given me some incredibly awkward either dates or or conversations with my partner in relationships at that time, because he talks about how love is 100% real, sure it is, but we can't ever truly know anyone else. So what we are in love with is the version of them that we have created in our head. And again, that always, every time I've discussed it, particularly in past relationships, it's not gone down well, because it's (laughs) it is that kind of... Do you love me? It's like, well, I'm glad you asked, actually, because I've got some interesting <laughs> things to uh, to explain yeah. there. But again, it's, here's it's all the saying, bits I do like. Yeah, yeah, ex- exactly. But it's it's not saying it in a bad way. The fact is, and it's not that people are secretive either. The fact is, I'm probably different around my mum, even than I am around my my dad, maybe, or than I am around my my, my br- brother. Then take that to my old school friends or my mm. work friends, they're all versions of me, but there's slight variations. So you can't ever truly know anyone. So you can only fall in love with the ver- with a version of them that, you, that, that you've created. Now, that might sound negative. It really helps on breakups because, again, you can really just go, ah, I was wrong. Yeah. I, yeah the, the, I was... the person I'd fallen in love with was a fiction. That, that I've now seen you're a dickhead. Yeah. You're, you're yeah. not And that's you're on not me. Born. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. That's on me. I my my dumbass brain managed to convince me. My brain, I'm so sorry to say this. My brain told me that you were sound. And now yeah. that we've spent six months together, my logic is telling me that you're a cunt. And I I'm, so I'm silly. very embarrassed. so silly. I'm, I am mortified. Anyway, you're obviously dumped. I fucking hate you. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's, it's exactly that. And it's, again, anytime it, seeing you kind of touch upon some of that in your show was the first time I'd kind of, I'd, I'd put it in a, I'd touched upon it in a few songs here and there, but it's the first time I'd seen it in kind of, in culture as such, in entertainment. And yeah, I thought it was amazingly put across without feeling too negative. Although obviously you're playing into the negativity at that point in the show. So it's, it's a lot of fun, but how, how, has that always been a thing for you to try and 
here's something I believe, and I don't think enough people know or are talking about it. How do I get this to them within the confines of a stand-up show? <laughs> like, it's not a lecture. It's not, people haven't turned yeah. up for your, your pie charts and here's this, but right, how do I get this across? For, I, I don't think it's ever been an intention. Like, I've never gone, like, this is what I want to talk about in this show. Here's, I don't, like, spin a wheel and it lands on a dark topic and I'm going to be like, all right, we're doing genocide today. That's going to be this fucking show. Um, but I, I'm a very open and honest person and I just always have been. I don't know whether that's autism or ADD or just my parents raised me right to just be, speak, you know, my truth at all times. But it was it basically when I, I just done normal stand-up for years and years and years. And it was when I did Dark for the first time. There was a show in LA called Riot LA where they encouraged comedians to go on and just tell a story that they'd never told before. And so the guy phones me up and he goes, what have you not talked about? And I goes, oh, you know, here's a bunch of sex stories. And he's like, we get sex stories all the time. Nobody gives a shit about the time you got laid, you fucking loser. Uh, and I was like, well, I've, I've not really spoken about, you know, my sister died when I was eight years old. Uh, she had cerebral palsy. And he was like, would you be willing to talk about that? And I was like... Yeah, and the reason I'd never talked about Josie isn't because it was too traumatic or it was, you know, an open wound or anything like that, but just because I didn't think anything... Well, that's not... I did think there was plenty funny about it. Me and my family had, you know, we'd always joked about it. But I didn't think I'd be able to do that on stage. And so I started telling the stories. I spoke to my mum beforehand, and I was like, hey, I'm going to talk about Josie on stage. Are you okay with this? Uh, She was like, of course I am. Here's three hysterical stories. Like, three of the stories I tell in Dark... (laughs) are not my jokes. They're my mum's. Because I was too young to remember them. Yeah. So she told me them all. I go on stage and I I wanted I wanted the audience to go through what I went through, which is I'm, my parents knew Josie was going to die eventually. Like when she was born, the doctor was like, look, five, six years tops. Yeah. Just like that's the stage. and But they obviously didn't tell me that. You don't tell a child that. So the day... Josie died, like swept me off my feet, man. Like I had no concept of it. And it was, it was really, really shocking and heartbreaking. But then I did grow from that. You know, my family, we stuck together, we made jokes and, and it was only going through that that we were able to laugh at it. So I really needed the audience to go through the same thing. And that's why I spent the first half of the show talking about her as if she's still alive, because I want to fucking rip that part out of the audience. And as a comedian, as a performer, you know, normally silence is bad. Normally silence is a lack of control. It's a time when you're not in charge of the room. But in that moment when I go, and that's the moment my mother told me my sister died, no matter where we were in the world, you could hear a fucking pin drop. And that is power. Like that fucking silence. What that is, is that, that is an audience that is drowning. Right, because you've been the one that's been keeping them afloat with laughter this entire time, and you've taken that laughter away from them, and they have no idea what to fucking do. Because for fifty-five minutes, you've been the source of their joy, and you've taken that away. And like a child that's just been thrown in a pool, they're going, "What do we? What do we do?" And then you can sort of you go, "No, no, you can teach yourself to stay up during this. You can. Yeah. It's uncomfortable, yeah. but we can swim during this. We can fucking make it through it. And by making them not giving them, you know." direct fucking punchlines, giving them like little snippets of them when they start giggling and they go, oh, no, I shouldn't, but it spreads around. It gave them, you know, that feeling of, oh, we can 
joke, talk about this. We can laugh about it. It's still sad, but just yeah. because emotions are complex, you can be sad and happy. You can laugh during sadness and you can cry during happiness. We're complex creatures and, you know, and then after that, like with, with dark, just seeing the impact that it had and speaking to so many people who either had disabilities themselves or they had family members with disabilities and talking to them after the shows, I, I, I loved that power and I wanted it again. And I was like, I've got, okay, I, I, I'm, I'm going to push myself more. That was me pushing. I, I didn't want to talk about Josie on stage. Now I'm going to talk about Josie on stage. And then I was in a horrible uh, relationship that, you know, was very, very toxic. And I couldn't talk about it for so long. And I was like, right, I'm going to talk about it on stage then. Because that's, you know, that, that, that'll give me power over it. That'll give me control over it. I didn't have control over it at the time. But now it'll help me uh, there. And then socio which isn't out anywhere yet, annoyingly. Uh, but that was about the... I was groomed when I was about 13 or 14 years old, unsuccessfully. But uh, I found out years after that I'd been groomed. Like, the police turned up at my door when I was 17. And they were like, do you remember this guy from when you were about 11? And I was like, yeah, he seemed dead sound. And they were like, yeah. well, he wasn't 17, he was 25. And I was just like, oh, Okay. Oh man, they had, they came with like a stack of fucking paper, which was every single conversation we had ever had online between 2001 and 2004. And the police start reading these conversations out to me. And I'm there going, holy fuck, I was being groomed. But because I was a kid, I had no idea. Yeah. And, and nothing ever happened because of it. But the, you know, when you become an adult and you're less, you know, uh, naive it's suddenly so obvious so I wanted to talk about that as well and also that was a response to the show Jigsaw because so many people accused me of being a sociopath and I wanted to really discover whether I was a sociopath uh, yeah. which I'm not I'm an yeah. empath good news um so yeah I've, I, it's, I've, I've never I've never intended to I've never sat down and gone I'm going to write a show about this controversial subject just I sort of naturally go that way eventually after writing like 45 minutes 50 minutes of stand-up yeah I, I, and it's also having a platform man i don't think you, you don't have a responsibility to do well I, no, I don't know if i agree with that already sometimes i feel that not a responsibility but it would be a waste to you know have so many people's attention for so long and not say something important to yourself um yeah to not try and go, look, here is something I truly fucking believe in. And while I do have you all listening, here's what I believe in. And also I'm going to sandwich it between jokes because that's how I always made people listen to me. I knew if I was ranting, people wouldn't fucking pay attention because I was just an angry fucking boy ranting. But if I put jokes in there, they'd listen to every word that came out of my mouth. I think it's more than that as well because when I did my Edinburgh Fringe show, I, I put jokes in between my spoken word pieces and part of that was because I felt inadequate being at the fringe and not being a, a, a comedian. But part of it was because I knew I had a lot of jokes about suicide, not j jokes, sorry, pieces about suicide, about mm. domestic violence, all sorts of stuff like that. And it's heavy. And as you say, that silence, it can be addictive, man. Because because the reveling oh, yeah. in it because it is it is power it's real power a laugh is one thing but having that whole room that frozen it's rare that there's a group that is silent generally if there's yeah. groups there's not silence so if you can control that group to silence it's addictive but I also think it's really important because I think it's the the feeling of those two emotions in quick succession 
So feeling that deep sadness, but then humour. But also the bit that I think people overlook is having to feel them both in quick succession publicly. Yes. So other people are, you're around other people and you've just heard about a suicide and and now moments later you're laughing. Oh my God, the shame of that, the, the, the indecency yes. of that. But it's like, no, it's not. It should be anyone who's been through these things and has got shithead friends knows that it's important to have that humour in there as well and to bounce around. And I think that can be such a cathartic thing and... Yeah, not to, 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 to put things on too high a pedestal, but I think it can really help people because I think we do, in in general, if your show just ended with, you know, and that's when my mum t- t- uh, told me my sister had died, it would have been powerful and amazing. It would have won awards at the Fringe because that's how that works. Um, yeah. But people would have gone home keeping the serious tone. Because out yes. of respect, they've gone. Here's where it's ended. That's oh, it's oh, it's so powerful. It's so powerful. But you don't allow them yeah. that. I, I'm gonna cry in the car. Yeah, we're gonna be somber. You, you don't allow them that. You go. No, I'm gonna make you laugh within seconds of this. So fuck you, yeah. and we're gonna move on. And I think that's it's far more important than the maybe the the artistic power it might feel to end on that moment of silence and walk away in the spotlight. It's far more important to go, no, we're going to, we, we're, we're moving around the emotions here. Just as I'm not only yeah, after laughs, I'm not only after the silence either. They're both addictive, and, but they're both important. And it's why we have to, it's why we have to fucking make jokes about horrible subjects because otherwise they would just kill us. They would just weigh us down so far. The ability to laugh in the face of something horrible gives you the power over it. Like, I mean, this is going to be a really shit and loser analogy, right? But it's like in Harry Potter, right? And you know, the well, I can't remember what they're called, but the, the things that live in the cupboard and they look like your most feared fucking thing, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. The whole uh, spell to get rid of it is ridiculous, which is you make the thing look ridiculous. And this thing that you were scared of suddenly shrinks and becomes so fucking small just because for one moment you were able to find it ridiculous. You were able to find the silliness in this all-consuming thing. And this thing that had power over you for so long is now, it's still there. Oh, and fuck me, it still hurts. Let's not pretend it does, it's fucking still hurt. But it can now sit in a fucking pocket, pop its head out every now and again, and you can whack and mull it down with a joke. It's an important part of of growth is, is being able to look and laugh at the things that have hurt you. Yeah. Because otherwise you're still there. If you can't laugh at them, you're not past it. Completely. I completely agree. Um, another thing that kind of jumped out to me, and it's interesting you mentioned Socio, because that's, that's a show I've not caught. But And again, I feel a little bit like I've, I've lured you into a Zoom call to say, here's my analysis of your of you as a person. Here's what I've read from, <laughs> from what you said. But something that, again, I connected to was I felt there was an empathy to unsympathetic f- f- figures. Kind of like I've always had this thing of, like, I find it hard to be outraged, even when something really bad's happened, because whilst I don't think I'm ever going to kill someone, I can kind of see how it happens as well. And whilst mm. I don't think I'm ever going to do this, I can see how I'm probably a couple of emotions away f- f- from this event or that event. And I think in society, we tend to build m- monsters because that's our safety thing. That that person who did that, that t- 
a 27 year old who was grooming you was this evil monster with big fangs and and nasty teeth the fact is that's not how these horrible people exist they exist because they're Mm. so close to being normal and they're so close to everyone else and i think it's hard to accept that but it's important to and yeah i I, i've got that that from a few different subjects that you've approached where you'd expect it to go look at that monster as such but instead it's like no look here's here's who we are humans are we're walking a fine line man we're walking a fine line so yeah how have you kind of found that in analyzing things and in analyzing looking at ourselves because that can be equally as worrying when you're like i've not done anything bad but i think everyone's capable of it therefore i think i'm capable of it i've got a tattoo on my uh, shoulder i'll show you that webcam for you it's yes Right, so that is uh, uh, the Joker from uh, The Killing Joke, Joke, Alan Moore's The Killing Joke. Yeah. Uh, One of the greatest uh, graphic novels uh, ever. And it's a Joker origin story. And in it, he was a stand-up comedian before he became the Joker, and he was a (laughs) shite one. But but Joker's entire point during this thing is he captures Commissioner Gordon's daughter, tortures her, shoots her through the spine, uh, cripples her, uh, and puts him then through this horrible funhouse, showing him all the images of all the awful things that he did to his daughter. And the Joker's point is, the difference between you and me, the one difference between you and me, Batman, is one bad day. That's mm. it. Mm. We're all human, right? All it fucking takes is one thing to break us. And I find that so true. And yeah. it's how you react to these things that define who you are as a person. You can either react angrily and become a monster and become this psychopath. Like, the Joker lost his family and he chose to go... Well, he didn't choose to go. He did go, reacted to it poorly, and his entire thing was to just cause anarchy and chaos from then on because nothing mattered. Whereas what Batman did, which was he lost his family, and he, he never wanted it to happen again. So it's yeah. it's how you react to these situations. Unfortunately... I got the tattoo when I, when I was 21 years old. And since then, oh, fucking having a Joker tattoo is a real different thing nowadays. Like, I've really, I've really yeah. accidentally, I'm like, I'm not an incel man. Like, I got yeah. it. This is, it's the comic book one. It's the cool one. Yeah. It's the Alan Moore one. Alan was my third guest on the podcast, like, years ago. And he's just one of my absolute heroes. And, and we, like, we normally send each other a Christmas card and a, and a letter each year. And he's a wizard. Um, and like, oh, so he's just, he's just so <laughs> that's the guy who I want to have the Joker represented by, not yeah. these this new era of, of, of incels. And again, it's so tough, I think, in this era because people will take on stuff that isn't theirs to take on. Oh, it's, it's like all the fucking police, it's all the police officers that have Punisher tattoos. Yeah. And you go, no, that's not, no. you're not the Punisher. You're not Frank Castle. You're a fucking asshole. He's not your guy. Punisher fucking hates you. He's yeah. not a fucking police officer. He was somebody who was against us. And they go, nah, nah. He goes out and punishes bad guys like I do. And you're like, that's not your job, buddy. Yeah, exactly. He, he punishes bad guys, including you. Yeah, <laughs> not, not, not you. like you. <laughs> <laughs> it's a weird one. Well, I mean... Kind of get it feels like not that far a leap from incels, but um, I shared one of your stand up pieces recently because I think it really summed things up. I was having a lot of arguments online because I did a tweet saying that 
any man whose whose reaction to the fear that, that women are feeling at the moment after the the the, the murder of a, of a young woman and after years of like every, every woman I know in every woman in my life has at some point had something uncomfortable happen on a walk home at night and then it trended online all these insecure men doing hashtag not all men and I did a, a tweet saying yeah obviously not all men are rapists but all men are responsible for helping for number one helping women f- feel safer and number two for spotting rapists because these men are, are are in disguise particularly when they're in public and when they're around women and when that disguise drops the most is when they're around their lad mates and they can be a lad and they can let the guards down a bit and they can be you know yeah they can give themselves over a bit and you had a piece kind of about that because of an experience that you had where in your view you you didn't spot someone and you should have you didn't spot it in in someone you knew and you and you you should have so how is it when I guess how is it to have pieces that sadly are going to keep rearing their heads and keep being re- relevant when you know you hope when you write these things oh this will become out of date at some point because society will move forward um how do you um, find that because they're personal as well so it's then it drags up personal uh, I mean you're not you're not you're not going to enjoy this answer I fucking hate X like I that tour and that show uh broke me down to a level that I still, I mean, I, I went to therapy after that tour and I'm, I'm still yeah. deep in it because I can't, I cannot objectively look at that show and not, um, not hate it and not hate what it, uh, put me through. Cause it's about my, uh, friend who was sexually assaulted by one of my very, very close friends and, you know, how me and my friends were, you know, complicit in it. You know, the signs were there, which we didn't think were signs at the time, but the second you look back, it's very, very, obvious and and I you know I wrote the show with her uh because I wanted to make sure that we got the tone right because when you're doing a, a show about sexual assault or when you're talking about sexual assault whether you like it or not minimum 40% of your audience have been affected by it in some way and you don't get to you don't get to choose how people react to the worst thing that ever happened to them yeah. you don't have a yeah. right to say, hey, no, it's just a joke. You don't have that right to say that. It might just be a joke to you, and that's fair enough, and I'll defend your right to tell that joke. But you absolutely fucking do not get to tell someone who's gone through that that they have to laugh or that they should fucking let it slide. It's trauma. It's trauma. And how people react to trauma is their own fucking thing. Um, so she, she messaged me the other day, just every time that clip goes viral, I... I hate when that clip goes viral because a lot of what X was meant to be about, or at least what I was trying to do, was make the point that yelling at men does not work. And I wish it did. It should work. Yelling at men should absolutely be enough for us all to go, yeah, okay, we take responsibility. But as a man, it does not fucking work. When I get yelled at, I get defensive and I put my fucking walls up and I put my fingers in my ears and I stop fucking listening. So you've got to get men on site. So the first hour of that show was me talking about, you know, me being a lad, me, all the stuff in my past uh, with my fucking boys and, and, and getting the guys on site, all the men in the room to go, hey, hey, I'm one of you, I'm one of the lads. And then at that point, while the men are with me go, hey, I know it's not all of us, but it is some of us. And we do know the people it is. You might not know you know who it is, but 
you'll find out fucking sooner or later. And I, I, it was about encouraging men because men want to be heroes. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I, I think that's actually yeah. sometimes a good side of toxic masculinity is this, I want to be the fucking big brave boy. All right, buddy, yeah, let's fucking harness that. Like, okay, you want to be a fucking big macho man, let's make sure we're aiming it in the right direction. And that 90-second clip is not that. That 90-second clip to me is me is me being a fucking white knight on a horse yelling at men. You see, I don't think it comes it comes across as as yelling because it kind of the the, the, the bit that I, I love in it in particular is saying exactly that saying look, you want to be the hero, you're you're raging with anger and you will kick the shit out of this person because they've done that. But what you could do is try and identify them earlier. Do you know what I mean? It, it, it didn't I, maybe that's because I've seen the whole show. The whole show, so, yeah, so I'm, yeah. I'm watching it in, in the context of my mind, but if it's out of that context, it might not be. But uh, when I've seen that, I've gone like, right, yeah, that's, that's again, it feels, it doesn't feel like it's saying, because again, that's what I tried to do like when I was tweeting about it. I was saying, look, it's not all men. You, no one, like yeah. people say, I don't want to be bunched in with a load of rapists. You're not, I promise you, you're not. No. But you are bunched in with the people who have to be the solution. And uh, uh, yeah. and the people have to help this. You know, you are bunched in with that, but that's that's heroes. That's that's a positive thing. That shouldn't be a negative. But I, I can I can completely see how if yeah if it's out of context, the, it might yeah, seem the, the, like the X like X took so long to to get right, so yeah. so very long to get right, and 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 I and I I did it wrong for a bit so so often. Like the first couple of previews of it, you know, talking about rape and sexual assault. The second you do, man, I can I can see instantly the people in the audience who are affected by it, right? You can see the change in the body language. You can see the change in the fucking facial expressions. And the first couple of times I did the show, there was not many laughs at that bit. Like, it was just uncomfortable. But at the end, I sort of said, look, to, to the woman in the room, right? I'm very aware that this is a straight white man talking about this subject. Like I'm, I've got clogs on and I'm walking through a minefield and I've, I'm very aware that I've blown my legs off at several points. But should I keep doing this or, or am I just getting it wrong or should I just shut the fuck up? And after the show, when we were coming up going, please do keep talking about it. Please bring this up. And I'd get feedback from them of like, you said this and that made it sound wrong. It would be better if you sort of phrased it in this way. And this isn't like people changing my fucking material. This is listening and empathy going, look, I understand that I do not have the full understanding of this subject and I do not want to get it wrong, but I'm going to get it wrong. So thank you very much for correcting me along the way. And there were so many times when, you know, we we had oh my, I mean, we'd have walkouts of the show, and not because people were angry or they hated it, but just because again, you are bringing up the worst moment of somebody's fucking life, and you are making them relive it. Beside their parents, who they might not have told, beside their friends, who might not fucking know, they've managed to put it so far in the back of their fucking brain, and they came out to a comedy show to see one of their favourite comedians, and I'm bringing up the worst thing that ever happened to them. And I'd always, after the show, me and my manager, we'd go talk to them and be like, how can, how can I make this bet? How can we stop this happening? Because the last people I wanted to upset are survivors, the absolute last people. Um, and we got into many really interesting discussions with a lot of survivors. They were like, you need to put a trigger warning on the show. And I really argued against that because 
I was like, if I put a trigger warning on the show, it's going to discourage the type of man who needs to see that show. If I see a trigger warning on a show, I go, I'll fucking grow up. Like, come on, man, you're a fucking comedian. Like, of course, of course, there's going to be controversy. It's, you don't need to do that. And they were going, yeah, but like, it would be easier for us to, no, so, I mean, the first five women I spoke to about it afterwards, they understood my reasoning. I understood theirs. And we just, I was like, you know, it's it's really hard. I just don't think I should. I, th- I think it's the wrong thing to do. And they were like, well, that's fine. You know, it's, it's your show. We've said our feelings. And then I did one show in San Francisco. It was the first day of the uh, American tour. And like five women walked out and I was like, well, that's me. That's me fucking wrong there. That's that over. Like that's, that's the stats. Like before it was just three or four, but five in a row, I'm incorrect here. And we managed to find a good way to do it, which was instead of like putting it at the, instead of doing like some big, like, oh, okay. You know, virtue signaling. This show contains the following themes. We, my support at Kai, we got him at the end of the show to just say, hey, look, Daniel talks about, you know, subjects. He's spoken about death. He's spoken about toxic relationships. He's talked about murder and all these things. This one features themes of uh, sexual assault, but he tackles it in a, you know, a sensitive way. And then that changed the tour to a fucking profound level afterwards. Like it really, really helped uh, from then on. And it, and it gave uh, survivors, both male and female, the time during the interval to mentally prepare for it. But oh, I was going to say, it's not, it's not come that <laughs> the beauty of the impact of art, particularly in stand up form is the, is, is that it, it hits you. It's, it's impactful. It comes yeah. out of nowhere. It catches you off guard, but a subject like that, you can't, you can't be having that. So, so do you know what I mean? If you can prepare, but still the punchline or whatever, or the reveal will still have that effect, but it gives them that time to know something's, something's coming that was the other thing like during the i want in in the same way that in dark i wanted the audience to be fucking blindsided by the death of my sister again we were blindsided at the time by this rape like you know i mean this guy who did it he, he he was one of my really close friends like he recommended my favorite my favorite book in the world he recommended it to me and it's really really hard to you know separate that sometimes and and, yeah. and to go I, like we were so close we went on holidays together we shared fucking secrets and you know he, and what what it meant to be blindsided by it as well to go look he was we were really close and he did this like it, it, it is close to home i know sometimes you think it's not um uh, but and then it was you know the well thankfully i, th- I think the you know, when they were like, the show, the show contains themes of sexual assault, all the blokes were like, hey, rape jokes, class, love those. So, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. when it actually came to the fucking topic, they were like, oh, okay. But one of, one of my, one of the few positive things I have to say uh, about X, and this is, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm very sorry to people who love that show. And because I, I, I don't like talking about X publicly just because, like I, I, I don't have kind things to say about it. Like it's not a piece of work I'm able to be proud of yet, just because of just like the whole thing is just too close to, and the tour of fucking was too long, and it, you know, reliving that story every single fucking night and seeing, you know, yeah. people being affected by it, it was just uh, horrible. I was always worried 
that it was going to get a poor reaction from men. Like, I knew women were going to like it, right? And there were so many times early on in the show when it started working that there were times when the women, I'd say something, I'd do like a big fucking rant, and the women would go, woo, and they'd clap. And I had to take that bit out. I was like, I, I don't clap for the love of fucking, because men will take that as an attack. We're not attacking the fucking men right. here. I, yeah. don't, I don't want to rally the women around the men. I want to rally everyone. Like, it's a group fucking effort here. Yeah. And I thought that, you know, telling the story and, 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 and holding myself accountable and then hopefully through the relationship that my audience has with me, men starting understanding that they need to hold themselves accountable, I thought there would be a bad reaction from men. I thought I'd get this, oh, you fucking changed, oh, you're this virtue signaler, oh, you're the, this, none of it. None of it, man. The amount of emails and tweets and Instagram messages from men saying, man, after the, I had no idea, like, uh, after the show, my wife told me a story, my girlfriend told me a story, my mum, my daughter, my cousin, my friend were able to open up to me. So I literally thousands upon thousands of men just going, okay, like, like, I'm, I'm paying attention now. There was literally, there was only one single negative comment and that came from somewhere in Estonia at some point. And it was just one man who was like, I didn't come to a comedy show to be lectured on rape. But seeing how many men were just, you know, they didn't, they didn't feel attacked. Yeah. They didn't feel like it was, they were being blamed for anything. And, and they were, but at the same time taken, responsibility for it that was something i did not expect to happen so uh, i mean I'll, I'll i'll wrap things up as we're kind of or i'll start to wrap things up as we're at the hour mark but how have you found the balance and the line in catharsis through addressing emotional subjects in art because from the sounds of it as you say x didn't didn't go well in that way that you know it it, it, it was emotionally unpleasant yeah, exactly. whereas Jigsaw and 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 dark even a, a better comparison maybe feels like that went right that that there was a lot of there was some good there you may have been almost tricked into talking about your sister's passing in a random comedy show in LA yeah. but it, it it ended up growing into something that sounds quite cathartic but again it's easy that when you do that that, that once you go well this is easy then I just take everything mm. that is emotional and turn it into art and it's okay. But sometimes, as you say, you turn it into art and then you have to perform that art and you have to go to that place night after night after night after night after night and it can have the opposite effect. So so where are you with that that balance, I guess? There was, I mean, there was there was a time when I was immensely proud of, you know, X and, and how it was going and the reaction it was getting. And I think that was around about, you know, fucking show 90. But it was because... Like, so I, I wrote X in January, oh no, about, sorry, uh, April, May 2017 or 18, I'm going to say, because it was basically seven months after the Jigsaw specials had come out. Now, Netflix do not tell you how well your specials are done. They don't tell you how many views it's got. Uh, they don't tell you where the views are. Um, you just don't know. So... Like the Netflix comes out, and we, we know, I know it's getting a big reaction. I can see my followers going up. I can see the fucking DMs, but we don't know how many. We're like, what, is, what does this mean for ticket sales? So I'm okay. I'm doing a 500 seater in uh, Sydney. Okay, we'll put that on. Sells it in a minute, and you go, what does that mean? Like, is there another? Is there, are there three thousand people waiting for tickets, or are mean, there just another? Does that 500? mean there was exactly 500 people there? <laughs> yeah, there were just. 
there. So we would just keep that. What we do is that we go, okay, well, maybe we'll try. We've not, we've not really had shows in America before. We'll add a couple of shows in America. And they sell out in like a 300 seater. So then you move up a venue, and but you've got to honor every single day. And because I'm just so excited by the success yeah. of Jigsaw, we keep adding shows and we just, and I, and I can't say no, cause, or, or I just didn't say no at the time because it was so exciting. And because I was so proud of the show and because, you know, my agent especially, who's been so emotionally supportive for the whole thing, you know, she was like, this is a show that needs to tour globally. Like you need to do this in Russia. You need to do this show in, in you know, Hong Kong and and, and Japan and, and and Eastern Europe and all these places. Like it's 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 a subject that you need to do it around the world. And I was like, great. I mean, I'd love to be. I was finally the fucking international comic. <laughs> um, and I just I I just bit off more than I can chew. I just kept saying yeah. yes uh, to gigs, and it got to the point where you know. Like, I was doing the show every night and I suddenly, I stopped feeling like a comedian because, because of the tone of X, because again, I'm walking through a minefield with clogs on that end bit. I couldn't really riff. Like it had to be performed in that way because I'd worked on it for so many months to make sure that I wasn't accidentally upsetting people or I was, you know, doing as little upsetting as I could to, Survivor, so I had to perform it in the same way every night, and that's not being a comedian. That was me suddenly being a fucking actor. So yeah. I just felt like caged in it. And then, I mean, it got to the point on fucking tour, man, when I was just, I was just drinking my way through it. I was like, the only way I can not look dead behind the fucking eyes is if I have six whiskeys in my system or I'm stoned out of my fucking head. Um, and then it became this horrible thing with myself where you know I'd go on stage and I'd be like I'm I'm a bit too drunk for this but the audience wouldn't know and then I'd smash the show so I hadn't learned a lesson I was like okay well I can just do this drunk now it becomes you know, a crutch then it's become as what you need to do for it it's like well, yes that one was amazing yeah and it's the only way I can have the energy for this now or the only way I can be present is I remember once I, can't, I think it was somewhere in Austria before I walked on stage, I looked Kai Humphreys dead in the eye and I took the biggest fucking hit from my weed vape and just hit. He was like, you've absolutely fucked yourself there. And I go on stage and I'm like, I've absolutely ruined this. But that made me be present because I was like, I'm too fucked. So I've got to pay extra attention. So I, yeah. I every joke, I'm, I'm, I'm paying more attention. I'm saying every single word I'm remembering. And it made the fucking performance better and it made me more... There, but and then uh, we don't need to talk about the fucking mental health effects of marijuana yeah. and alcohol yeah. over the course of this whole thing. So it was just it was me poorly dealing with things, and then also you know I'd be drunk, and then I'd be talking about the loss of this friend, but, and which is a hard thing to be heartbroken about because he was a bastard, he's an evil man, but there was still a part of me that you know, I, I missed the guy who didn't do that. Like I missed the person who I thought he was. Yeah. And and then also the responsibility myself, which is just, you know, the more you talk about it, the more you fucking realise how obvious the fucking signs were and how I did just ignore shit. And that, you know, a lot of the responsibility did fall on my shoulders and reliving that every night and then talking to survivors after the show and people saying really lovely things as well. Like, you know, the emotional response from ex-people telling me their stories and I and I wanted to listen to their stories because for some of them it was the first time that they were telling their stories like they, they'd seen the show 
and and they felt like they could talk to me. But it just means I'm hearing these stories every night and I'm getting all these messages and I'm reading them all. And it's horrible, heartbreaking stories, which have happy endings because, you know, they're fine now, they're moving on. But it just, the weight the, of the world You're not trained to digest all of that. With a fascinating thing about the Samaritans is the end of every Samaritan shift, they have to call the 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 night's leader and unload kind of say yeah. here's how tonight's gone and not necessarily go into details but here's what happened here's the calls i had because it allows you to mentally just take it out of your brain a little bit whereas if you're mm. literally touring the world taking on everyone's darkest stories and then you're going back I... to a hotel room on your own do you know what i mean it's like it fuck was... that's grim yeah, and it, and it, but I did. I didn't want to stop. I, I didn't want to stop listening. Like, I, I like, yeah. like if I, my stance to myself was, if I forced them to listen to my story, <laughs> like they bought a show, they weren't expecting yeah. to hear this story. If I forced them to go through that, then the bare fucking minimum I owe these people is to listen to theirs. Like that's. And 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 just with the amount of touring, with because uh, I'd said yes to everything, and because I was drinking and fucking being stoned the entire time, I became a vile human being for yeah. for about fucking six months. I was just I was toxic to my fucking agent and my manager and friends. I'd just fucking snap at people, and 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 then there was times when I resented the audience. Because I'd walk out on stage and just be like, the only fucking reason I'm here is because of you. Like, if it wasn't for... Because I'm not, I'm not going to not do a show. I'm not going to not. Like, I, 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 you know as a fucking performer, it's in the diary, you do it. And you owe that audience the best you can fucking do. That's our responsibility as fucking performers. And I could, and no matter, and I could never get rid of that obligation in my head. And I still... And, and, but then I hated, the, I hated how spoiled I'd become. Here was everything I wanted. Everything I'd ever fucking wanted right in front of me and typical, miserable, miserable during it. So that made me just hate myself so fucking much. And th- thankfully, I, I, I was I, at the end of the tour, like I had the wherewithal to be like, I'm going to sign myself up to therapy immediately because this is not who uh, I want to be anymore. And, and it was great. It was really, really good. I'm still uh, with, with them. We don't do it as much anymore. It's always funny. Sometimes I phone my therapist, and and after ten minutes, he'll be like, "Hey, you're fine today. Go away." <laughs> and like, that's the end. <laughs> Again, he doesn't he doesn't charge me anything. He's like, "Yeah, fuck off. You're fine. There's nothing to talk Brilliant. about." <laughs> um, so I, I mean, the the new show that I'm doing now, uh, Hubris. Uh, my thing was, I I didn't want to do I didn't want to do a Daniel Sloth show again. I didn't want to do 60 minutes of jokes and then 30 minutes of here's some sadness to deal with, you fucking cunts. Yeah. I wanted to just do straight, straight stand-up. And my friend who the show X is You're going to run out of horrific situations in the end, so <laughs> otherwise you're going to have to really get more destructive in your own life, go, yeah. well, we yeah. need a new show. If, yeah, if only a genocide could affect me in some way and then I'd finally be able to do a fucking show about it. Yeah. Um, I was I was telling her I was like I'm just gonna do stand up and she just laughed and laughed and laughed and she's like you I love you dearly man but you do not have the ability to stand on stage for that long and not make a fucking point it's who you are so going forward like the really good thing about this pandemic is it has absolutely made me refine my love of stand up 
not being able to right. do it for so long, not being able to perform for so long and, and, and being able to fucking take a year off and, and, and just sort of separate myself from X, spend some time with my uh, fiance, learn her name, learn what she does and all the things that I was not able to learn about her on tour. It's, it's made me now just have this fucking drive again, but I also now know my limits. Like I, I, I thought I was invincible. I absolutely thought I was God's gift to fucking comedy and everything would be water off a duck's back and that I'd be able to do it. And I learned uh, a very, very valuable lesson that I couldn't do that. So going forward, make the tour more sensible, give myself more breaks, allow myself uh, more freedom on, on stage and and also just stop fucking forgetting that this is the greatest job in the world and stop forgetting that I am one of the luckiest people alive to get to call this much. My job is to go on stage and to make people laugh. Like the yeah. fact that I ever found misery in that is is upsetting. It's horrible, and I and I and I, and I never want to go uh, through it again. And 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 I and I really hope in the next couple of years that I'm able to sort of distance myself enough from X that I'm able to sort of look back on it and see what everyone else sees. Because yeah. when I when I when I see that sh- when that clip goes viral, I don't see a man making a good point. All I see is is a sad drunk man on stage who misses home. That's all I see in my fucking eye. Because people have seen the show two or three times. I performed the show three hundred times. Like I, I I know my mannerisms and whatnot, and I can see the I can see the darkness in myself, and it and it and it and it and it makes me sad because you know. It, I, I just think it could have been better. I think I could. Have, I think I could have done better. Well, to 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 wrap things up, how excited are you to be in Australia? Because it's been a long time, and they've 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 done this pandemic well. The the mm. the fact that you're in a, a hotel for two weeks again, it's been so mad. Every time I see anyone post about it, there's all these Americans all saying how outrageous it is and how unfair it is and inhumane yet i never see any australians or new zealanders complaining about it at all because they're like oh we've got our world back like you're gonna have an audience right you're gonna have humans there full full like they've just announced in sydney that there's no restrictions on venue sizes anymore so it's going to be full uh capacity i I'm, i'm so excited because it's I wrote this show last year in January, uh, took it over to New York and LA to just try out there and get it, sort of beat it into shape in preparation for the Australian tour and then the UK tour and then the rest of the world tour. Um, and then the pandemic happened and 50% of the fucking jokes became immediately dated mm. uh, because there's a pre-COVID world and there's a post-COVID world. And a lot of pre-COVID jokes do not work in a post-COVID world yeah, because it's, it's changed so much like what is normal now is different to what it was when I wrote the jokes I'm excited to work those out on on stage I'm excited to I'm I'm, I'm, ju- I'm, I'm glad to hear you you've still got to work them out because I was worried about what condition are you your fiance may be in if you've had a year of working it out with a one-person audience just because, oh. again, I know comedians will tend to <laughs> tour the arse off of a thing before it's even a thing. So I was like, man, if you've got yeah. a few shows in in New York and then you've been locked at home with someone, this poor girl. 
<laughs> she's she oh man, she's she's got the fucking patience of a saint when it comes to me. And she's also I mean, she I she's just she loves me unconditionally, which is a wild concept to consider. Uh, well, not unconditionally. I reckon if I was to be a dick to her, she'd fucking hate me. But yeah, I mean, she's <laughs> she went through she went into the fucking deep end with me because, like, I when we started dating, I was on tour during X, and uh, and so we saw each other three times. She came to Australia, she came to New York, and I saw her two or three times uh, when I was home. And a lot of the time when I was FaceTiming her, it was just me drunk and sad in another country and I was just like I promise you I'm not always like this I promise you and then and then we had like two 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 or three months of normalcy at the start of last year and then and then we went into fucking lockdown and I just kept being like I need you to give me the love of 3,000 strangers on a day-to-day basis because because what I've suddenly learned is that I me, the guy that wrote Jigsaw, turns out I never really learned how to love myself. Turns out I got all of my love for myself from the love of strangers, and they've all fucked off. Yeah. And so, so she saw me, you know, lose my mind a bit in like a good way. It was me suddenly. I'd been, I'd been Daniel Sloss for so long, for so many fucking years that I forgot how to be Daniel. Mm-hmm. And and uh, in the first couple of months in lockdown, I fucking... Just me going, what, what are my hobbies? Like, what do I... What, it's been so long since I've had free time. What what yeah. do I fucking do with it? And I got to... It's, it's been good. I mean, I really feel like... Uh, I feel like everyone during quarantine has gone into a little cocoon. We all have, right? And, and we're all starting to emerge better like it's, we've yeah. all gone through this shit this lockdown this pandemic has not been easy for everyone but we've all you know been forced into this fucking chrysalis and and i and, and not to make this <laughs> too sort of positive affirmation stuff because i fucking hate that shit but but i do think we are going to come out of it better different people but stronger smarter people who are more in touch with ourselves uh, and our own mental health since this has been a fucking... I don't know anyone who's gone through this pandemic and not encountered mental health problems. Yeah. Like, yeah. The, all the self-doubt. And that's been really, really tough. But we've made it... We've almost made it through, man. Yeah. Like, yeah. If, if we... If, we, if and when we all get through this, fucking nothing can ever kill us again. We'll be grand. Yeah. I love it. Well, that's the perfect note to end it on. Thank you very much for taking the time, man. It's, it's oh, been a man, joy. Genuine pleasure to finally get to fucking talk to you because literally we have been friends online for, I'm going to say, nine years at this point. Yeah, I'd say around and that. Still, and we've just never, ever taken the time and we've never bumped into each other. So it's been a, it's been a pleasure, man. It's, it's, it was... Hilarious. I messaged you as soon as I saw you do a video going, I'm in quarantine for 14 days. My literally immediate message going, podcast then like we can actually because both yeah, of us yeah, are all yeah. constantly working and on the move i was like we can make this happen at last so yeah perfect oh lovely man you've been listening to scroobius pips distraction pieces there we go. That was Daniel Sloss. I hope you enjoyed that. I told you it was a good chat, didn't I? Um, as said, if you missed last week's with Kaylin Heffernan of Wheelchair Sports Camp, go back and check that out. If this is your first time tuning in, in fact, I should get 
buddy piece to cut this and put this in the beginning in the intro yeah i will so you will have already heard this but by the magic of editing you won't have known that i said it at the end so if this is your first time listening of course i've had loads of good comedians on from Stuart lee to dame baptiste to nish kumar to ashlyn b Catherine ryan sarah pasco cariad lloyd limmy fern brady who else frankie boyle um adam buxton everyone i've had everyone on basically just all the comedians i've had them all on and they've all been wonderful so go and have a listen there you go that was i've just done that in the outro and you will have heard that in the intro not knowing so you've heard it twice now but at least it might remind you to go and check a few people out and the magic bit that you won't know is i forgot one of their names so there was a big pause and then i looked it up but buddy pieces edited that out so you're getting a real look behind the curtain here of the mess that my already messy intros come across as it's even messier than you ever know so um yeah anyway i'm gonna go and i will be back next week with just an amazing episode in fact as we're right at the end i don't normally reveal them but i'll tell you now it's with simone sun and she is a neuroscientist who a lot of us daddies are into trans stuff trans science i guess and we had a good chat about the science and biology behind sex and gender and it was mind-blowing honestly it was she's just so amazing at making things relatable and understandable whilst dropping huge knowledge like literally dropping science on these fools so yeah you're gonna love that one it's such a honestly it's gonna blow your mind and it's gonna be one that people share a lot because it explains a lot of things that people are ignorant about particularly online a lot these days and dispels a lot of the ignorant arguments online so it's gonna be a hell of a a tool um so yeah that's next week i can't wait for it um so see you then stay sane and stay safe ta-ta